0: So this morning, we're in a series called Prayers for This Moment. And what we're looking at is the book of Psalms. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the most famous chapter in all of the Bible, Psalm 23. It's a great psalm if you want to get out your smartphones or your Bibles. And David, who wrote this psalm, understood the role and responsibility of a shepherd because he was a shepherd, and he said, Hey, I have a shepherd myself. And so the title of the message is God of our valleys, God of our valleys. And I'm reading from the New International Version, Psalm 23. We're reading all six verses beginning in verse one says, The Lord is my shepherd, and I lack nothing. And he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, and he refreshes my soul. And he guides me along the paths for his name's sake, And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. And surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. And Father, thank you for your word. I pray that as we gather around the truth of your word, that your truth would do its work in us. Thank you, Lord, that you are good, and you are great, and you are light, and you are our salvation, and our hope, and our strong tower, and our refuge, and there is no one like you. And may we gaze into the beauty of what it means to be sons and daughters of Almighty God. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would meet us. I pray that you'd be exalted, You'd be lifted high in our lives and in this church and in this community. We pray that you would do this and you would do more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so this begins with, Psalm 23 begins with, The Lord is my shepherd and ends with, And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so this psalm, it's all about God. It's all about what God wants to do in your life. It's about a shepherd who calls you to follow him. And David, the shepherd here, makes the declaration that I have a shepherd myself. I might be a shepherd, but I have a shepherd myself. And so I have somebody who looks after me. Just like I look after the sheep and who cares for me and provides for me. so he's looking up. It's like David is looking up at God the shepherd and says, The Lord is my shepherd. So the shepherd is identified as the Lord. He's the unchanging shepherd. The shepherd who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And how much do we need a shepherd that we can depend on that is the same in these unchanging times? You think about it. He is the most consistent part of your life there. And so the shepherd in your life has things, can do things that only he can do, things that only he can fix. We all have a past that we need the shepherd to address our past. We have a shepherd who addresses and walks with us in the future and a shepherd who is with us today. So he's all that we need. It says, and I will lack nothing. Psalm 23 declares that if the Lord is your shepherd, he will meet all of your needs. And so in social media, I think that one of the driving things about social media is it's all about you. You decide. You guide your own life. Uh, You're the one that makes all of the decisions. And so one of the phrases I think that's become more popular is kind of to boss up. Uh, And so in uh, the urban dictionary, it's defined as taking ownership of your life and directing the full capacity of your time, your resources, and attention toward your specific goal and your direction. So to boss up now is beginning to be more prevalent and dominate on social media, which really goes in the opposite direction of what Psalm 23 is talking about, that you need a shepherd that would do that very thing for you, that he would be the one that guides you and leads you, refreshes you, and makes you lie down to rest. So it says in verse 2, it says and he makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. So here is what the great shepherd will do for you. It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. So Jesus being the great shepherd will give us rest. He's the only one that can give us uh, restoration. And God is saying, I will make you, figuratively, lie down in green grass. I will make you lie down in fertile areas, a place where there's a potential for growth, a place where there's a potential for you to have health. So the shepherd then is an expert on what you need here. And he says, I know what you need. And what you need is a green pasture. And what the shepherds of that day would do is around noon, they would guide the sheep to a pasture that would be green, that would be safe. He would protect them there, and there they could be restored. They could be nourished. uh, They could gain restoration, and they would be ready for the next day. So he says, I will guide you in green pastures, and he says, "Um, and I will lead you beside quiet waters. What shepherds would do then is they would lead sheep not to where there was rushing water because sheep were so dumb, so absolutely dumb. They could fall over and they would drown. I was on a farm one time in New Zealand and I went out with the shepherd and we were looking at the sheep and he said, uh, he said, you know what the the greatest fear that I have and my greatest uh, issue that I have to deal with? I said, what is that? He said, the sheep will fall into the pool and they'll die. They'll just die and they're so dumb. They do not even know what to do. They'll just die by falling in the pool. So I have to watch the sheep all the time. And this is what the shepherds would do. They couldn't go by rushing water. They had to have still little waters that they could handle. And he says, that's what a shepherd does. And then he says, and he refreshes my soul, and he guides me along right paths for his name's sake. So one of the things that God wants to do is to guide you and lead you along the path that you should take. And so there's no app out there that can help you do this. There's no knowing the right path according to the shepherd, but to follow the shepherd. So I think we're perpetually trying to find the right path. But really, this is saying that only the shepherd is the one that can guide you on that. And then he says here, after the shepherd guides me down his path for our lives, rather than we carving out our own path, he says in verse 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley or the valley of the shadow of death, I want to unpack this a little bit because the Bible has a lot to say about valleys in our lives. The Bible says that life can be hard. How many people know that life can be very hard? And so valleys, life is full of valleys and difficult times. And God is not just the God of your mountaintops or the God of your plains. God is the God of your valleys. And I want to unpack that for us this morning because God is saying, I'm not just the God of your happy moments. I'm not just the God when things are going good. I'm the God of your valleys. I'm the God who meets you in times of despair, times of discouragement, times of depression, times of darkness. That is who I am. So, so much of our lives are lived out in valleys. You think about it, either you're in a valley this morning, or you're going to be going into a valley, or you've just exited out of a valley. But really, that is a summation of life. Valleys of hardship, and valleys of trials, uh, hard valleys, difficult valleys, financial valleys, I mean, emotional valleys. Valleys are just central and core to life here, and we all know that, that valleys are a part of life, that they're inevitable, that they're inescapable, that they're part of the core curriculum of life, that God has actually designed that valleys would be a part of your life. They would not only include mountaintops and plains, but actually valleys. And so valleys, we need to be very clear, friends, they are inevitable. So valleys happen to everybody. No one's immune. Valleys are, are, are just central to life. They're unpredictable. They come unexpectedly. Wouldn't it be great if you could schedule your valleys? where you can think, you know, next year, next year, next month, I've got some time, and I can handle a valley then. But no, valleys come unexpectedly. Disasters come unexpectedly. Accidents come unexpectedly. And so we experience all kinds of valleys, valleys of failure, valleys of getting stuck, So what I want to do this morning is unpack for us four specific kinds of valleys that you will face all of these valleys in your life. Every one we're going to talk about from the scripture is a valley that you've already faced, you will face, or you're facing today. And then we're going to finish up with three take-home points for how to deal with the valleys that we live in. And So firstly, the types of valleys that are found in scripture. The first one I want to talk about is in Genesis 14:10. And this is the Valley of Siddom. The Valley of Siddom, which is really a valley of failure, a valley of humiliation, a valley of being embarrassed. So what was happening in Genesis 14 was this epic battle of 9 kings fighting against each other. There was five kings, including two from Sodom and Gomorrah, and then there was another four kings. So they have this epic battle, and the tide begins to turn. And the five kings begin to lose. The four kings begin to win. So the five kings take off running. It really happened. You can read this in your Bible. So the five kings take off running with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and they're running away and they get stuck in tar pits of all things. They get stuck in the tar pits and they can't can't escape the tar pits. And imagine the humiliation. Not only did you lose the battle, but now you're stuck in the tar pits where all the other soldiers could see you. And there's nothing that you can do. You can't escape. It's a, a, a moment of monumental embarrassment. And Sidom is the place really that you want to forget. It's just what you want to put behind you. You could probably all relate to a moment of absolute humiliation or embarrassment or utter failure that was public that other people saw that. Well, that was the valley of Sidom, the valley of failure. There's another significant valley in the Bible called the Valley of Eshkol. The Valley of Eshkol. And this really is the Valley of Fear. And you may remember that the children of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness and they had left Egypt. They were going to the promised land and they were right on the cusp of the promised land when Moses said, well, let's send in 12 spies to the promised land. And so they sent in 12 spies. 10 of them came back with a negative report, and two of them were like, dang, we can take the land. It's amazing. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, all of the fruit looks like it's it's on steroids. It's like somebody's got miracle Grow. It's amazing. So the fruit is off over the charts. But yet, what happened was, is they didn't go into the land. And so they were like, the ten spies were like, forget it. Uh, there's Amalekites and Jebusites and uh, every other kind of mosquito bite there, and Hittites, and Amorites, and they're all connected to Anak, the, the giant, and we can't conquer the land. And so what happened then is that fear began to freeze their future. And that's what happens when you fear things. It can so dominate you that fear can freeze your future, and that's what happened here in, the val- in this valley is that they were afraid to go in. And I just would wonder, what is your valley of Eshkol? What is the thing that is freezing you, the thing that is paralyzing you, uh, the thing that uh, causes you to be intimidated and causes you to shrink back and causes you to, to not realize your future because you're paralyzed by what you're seeing? Well, that's the valley of Eshkol here. And, uh, and how do you deal with that? And how do you know whether or not you're in a valley of Eshkol? Well, some people will look at it as a valley of opportunity, but others see everything through the eyes of obstacles, which that's what happened with the 10 spies. They saw everything through the eyes of obstacles, and they're like, man, we can't fight them. We're like little grasshoppers in their sight, and everything was an obstacle. That's how really you begin to realize you are in a valley of Eshkol. Well, a third type of valley that the Bible talks about is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And this is the famous battle of Goliath and David, the Valley of Elah. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 3, the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another hill with the Valley of Elah, between them. I think that describes America in a lot of ways, that there is one hill and another hill and a great valley of conflict between us. And so the Valley of Elah, though, really was a conflict uh, or a valley of conflict. It was a valley where they were facing giants. So what is your Elah right now? You're not in the valley of the shadow of death, but there's conflicts that you may have in your life. You may be experiencing a deadlock there. Maybe it is in your relationships or your marriage or your work, whatever. But you're just in a deadlock. You're experiencing intense conflict. And there's giants that you can't seem to overcome. Well, there's a fourth type of valley in the Bible I want to talk about. And this one is known as the Valley of Baca which in the Hebrew word means the valley of weeping, the valley of grief, the valley of emptiness, the valley uh, of sadness. It'd sort of be like it was a barren place. Baca was kind of like Blythe, if you know what I mean, unless you're from Blythe. And so, but it was a wasteland. It was dry. It was barren. It was dusty. There was nothing that grew there. It was just, it was just, uh, Baca means tears that are being expressed. It means a a dry time in your life, a time of grief, a time of barrenness. And so we see here that there are valleys in the Bible that really speak of of the valleys that we will experience in life. And again, they are inevitable. They're unpredictable. You never know when they're going to come. And so now regardless of the valley that you go through, what do you need to remember? Well, there's three things, three take-home points that David tells us about that I think are critical to negotiating the valleys of life. And the first one is found in verse 4. It says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Two key words, one is you, and the other is through. These two key words are so important because I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Not that I am stuck there forever. Not that it is elongated for the totality of my life. You don't stay in valleys forever, though they seem like they are forever. You walk through it. You, you get to the other side eventually. You're not going to have uh, valleys in your life, the totality of your life. You will eventually get on the other side. They are temporary. They are something that you get through, even though it feels like you they're going to last forever. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Then he says, you are with me. So the first point is this, is you need to recognize that God is with you. Literally, Yahweh, almighty God, is with you. Even though, he says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Friends, sooner or later, the shadow is going to cross your path. It is inescapable that this shadow will cross your path. And you are going to experience this shadow of death. I have experienced the shadow as I did the memorial funeral service for my mother and for my father, for my best friend when I was 17 years old, Mike Hendricks. The shadow of death visited him and was cast upon my life. Many of you, you've experienced the shadow of death you've lost friends, or you've lost family, you've lost loved ones, you've lost a parent, or you've lost children. And I have stood at the bedside of many final moments of people's lives, and that's a part of of what I get asked to do. And the shadow will cast itself over your life at some time. It is an inescapable shadow. And here is what I know, though, in light of the shadow. There is no shadow without light. Merely that you would say there's a shadow implies that there has to be light from which the shadow emanates. So shadows in life are evidence of the presence of light, that God is with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Shadows of despair, and shadows of depression, shadows of grief, of Maybe losing your mind in these crazy times. Shadows of conflict and fear and failure. Or whatever it is, name your shadow this morning. But how do you deal with it? That is, an, uh, again, an inexorable reality. But how do you deal with the shadows of death? How do you deal with the valleys of life? Here's how you deal with them, is what the scripture is saying, is it you turn your back on the shadow and you look to the shepherd. That's what this psalm is all about. You turn your back on the shadow and you look to the shepherd. Jesus said, John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. And whoever believes in me is not going to walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. God says, I'm there with you in the midst of the valleys, in the midst of the shadows, even though you don't see. Isaiah 43 puts it this way. When you walk through deep waters and great trouble, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. So friends, this is the shepherd of Psalm 23 that I want to share with you this morning. That he is the God of the darkest days, and he is the God of the darkest valleys, And he is with you. So number one is remember, I am not alone, that God is with me. And then he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, this is what shepherds would have. These two uh, instruments, they would have a rod, which was like a big oak club. And guess what that was used for was the animals that would want to take out the sheep. But then they would have also uh, not just a rod, but they would have a staff. And the staff then would guide the sheep, poke the sheep, prod the sheep, keep the sheep on the right path, which is a picture of what the shepherd does in your life, poking you, prodding you, keeping you on the right, on the right path there. And then he says this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, And you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Well, what does this mean that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? Well, let's begin with this. He says, you, you is God is the host of the table. It's God's idea here. and God is requesting the honor of your presence at the table. You prepare. It is a well-prepared table. It is well planned by God Almighty. This is not some spontaneous flying by the seat of your pants table. This is not put together at the last minute. God is saying, I'm inviting you literally to the king's table, not some little dinky folding table, not some little dumb dinette. This we're talking about We're talking about the king's table, which you've seen those perhaps in castles or seen them on movies, where they're like 75, 100 feet long, and they are awesome. That's the kind of table that this literally in the Hebrew is speaking of, the king's table. One of those massive, really long tables in the castle. It is a sacred, heavy, dramatic, massive table of the king. And the only one that gets invited to this are the VIPs, but you are the only VIP invited to this table. What an honor that that this is, a banquet table that is just for you. Remember, this is what God is like here. It's just you, like you're the big deal sitting at the big table in the presence of your enemies. Well, what does that mean? That means that it's not private, that it's public. That there are many people that are gonna see you at this table with the king there. People are going to watch you eat with the king. And so, all of your enemies are gonna watch you eat together with the king. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And so, imagine this. What do the enemies come in? Well, this is showing like the heat of the battle where there you are, you're fighting for your sanity, your dignity, and while the battle is going on, God wants to throw a banquet, and have you come to the table as the only guest. It's a banquet on the battlefield. And so what happened here, imagine Robin Hood, imagine Gladiator, those type scenes there, where there's the kings, and the courts, and the flags, and all the pomp and circumstance, and you're in a a fierce battle. And so what's happening then is that you are a soldier in the fierce battle and you're full of sweat and blood and you are spent and you are fatigued and you are hungry and you are exhausted. And all of a sudden the the king is summoning you to the table. And there you're leaving this intense battlefield and you're being summoned then to be with the king and you approach that, and you see the, the tent there, and you begin to see the table, and you think it's the king at the end of the table, and there's a full feast at the table there, and the noblemen aren't allowed to sit at the table. Only you get to sit at this table here. It's just you and the king, and there's guards around the table, and the king says this to you. He says your name, that I planned all of this to you, that you would eat at the table, I just wanted to meet with you. Friends, remember, this is what God is like here. God wants to replenish you so you can go back out to the war, so that you could be nourished, so that you could be renewed, that you could be strengthened. God wants to bless you. And this is what God is like here. God wants to hang out with you. God wants to invite you to his table where this, this banquet on the battlefield and the king is saying, hey, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna throw a party for you because I can see that this is what you need. God there wants to get to know you. God is a God here who wants to would wanna give you something to eat there and it would just be you and him and he would say, I see your life and I see that you're under attack. I see the battle. So what I wanna do is, I want to to set a table before you, for you, in the presence of your enemies. And then he says this. He says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy or love will follow me all the days of my life. So this is a promise that God gives you, a promise that, um, that good things will happen to you But obviously, you know, a lot of bad things are going to happen, right? Like bad things happen to good people. So this is not saying that only good things are going to happen to you. But this is a promise that God will ensure that good, listen, good will come out of all the bad stuff that happens to you. That goodness will follow you. And watch what it says. All the days of your life. Not just like, okay, you get goodness on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm going to throw in a little a little mercy on Thursday and Friday, and Saturday and Sunday, baby. You are on your own. Like that's not how God operates. So there's there's no there's there's no cessation of His goodness and no cessation of His mercy. So we can have this confidence that there's no off switch with God. There's no off switch to His goodness. No off switch to His mercy. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days. Of my life. Hey, doesn't that give you a bit of confidence? Knowing that God is a God that will cause goodness and mercy to follow you all the days of your life. In other words, the goodness is we know that all things, Romans 8 28, all things are working together for the good, but there's a but there's a qualifier. See, if you're not following him, all things don't work together for the good. All the all bets are off you're not following him, it doesn't say all things work together for the good. They may work for the bad. But all things work for the good to those that, uh, in the Living Bible says, all that happens to us is working for good if we love God and are fitting into his plans. And so there's never been a moment of your life that God is not watching over your life, intending for goodness and mercy to come to its fullest expression. In the midst of your highs, in the midst of your lows, in the midst of the goods and the bads, this is what God is like. He will always be merciful every moment of your life. He will always be good every moment of your life. He is never not good to me. He is never not merciful to me. And so perhaps you're here and you feel like, if you knew my story, I don't feel the goodness of God. I don't feel the mercy of God. Well, you can't really go by how you feel and you don't know the end of your story. So God's goodness and God's mercy are following you, watch friends, as you follow the shepherd. In the valley of shadow of death, there's another story being written. And in the end, you recognize that good has followed you all the days of your life. There's a worship leader named Stephen Curtis Chapman. And He's done like 11 million albums at the Dove Awards and Grammy Awards. And he wrote a book called Between Heaven and the Real World. And he says this in his book. He discusses what the valleys of his life were like. And he says this. I lost my daughter in a freak accident. And there's another story being told that we don't always see. Frankly, if I didn't believe that, I would be an extremely bitter and angry man. When there was nothing else to hold on to, I heard myself say, God, I'm going to trust you and worship you, not because there's an audience watching. I'm going to bless your name, whether you give or whether you take away. Previously, before my daughter's death, I had gone 50 feet below sea level, and I thought it was dark down there. But I also learned that God was with me. But now I I am pushed 100,000 feet below sea level, where it was darker than I could ever imagine. And I found the same thing was true there as well. You see, God was teaching him. God was showing him his purpose. God was working out that reality in his life. So remember, number one, that God is with you. But secondly, you learn in the valleys, God has a purpose for you in your valleys. Even the bad things that happen in your life, God can turn them around. Hosea, I love how Hosea, the minor prophet, says in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, I will transform your valley of trouble like I can take your valley of trouble. He says, and I will turn that into a gateway of hope. Imagine that, that God can turn you into a person of who dispenses hope. He's going to transform your valleys of trouble into valleys of of hope, God has a purpose in the valley, so we're not alone. God has a good purpose. And number three is this: is that the reward will be forever. The reward will be forever. The last verse of Psalm 23 says this: "And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." He says, and connecting what was the past to the future. And the future is this, and not, we don't just stop there, but I will be rewarded forever. So this is a crescendo. This is building to the big ending here, that I will be in God's house forever, that the best is yet to come. Think of it, friends, that life is not, this life is not the end of the story, that you'll be rewarded for being faithful in the valley of failure. You'll be rewarded in the valley for the valley of fear, in the valley of conflict. You'll be rewarded for the valley of fear, for the valley of the shadow of death, for the valleys of trouble, and all the valleys of life. You'll be rewarded, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In other words, when life is over, the real reality is this: life is just getting started. It is forever. You will be more alive than ever, and it will go on forever. I love the perspective that is given in Second Corinthians 4.17 that says this. It says, our light afflictions in this life, that seem like they're forever, right, that are but for a moment, shall work in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, the New Living Translation says our present troubles are quite small. We think they're so big right now, but from a heavenly perspective, we would say, God, what were we so worked up about? And it says, and they won't last very long, yet here's what they do. They're producing in you an eternal glory that will last forever, and it is just greater than anything that you could imagine. We will live in the house. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Now, uh, until we get to heaven, yes, friends, we're going to face valleys. We talked about them this morning. We're going to face family issues, business issues, COVID issues, and political issues, and accidents, and addictions, and physical illness, and mental illness, and drama, and everything else. We're going to face all that. I will go through the valleys and I have no doubt that many of you may be in the depth of the darkest valley you've ever experienced. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. And when you can say that, not everybody can say that. Most, many people can only say the Lord is a shepherd or the Lord is the shepherd. But when you can say the Lord is my shepherd, going through valleys is different. And why are they different? Not because of the absence of the shadow, but because of the presence of the shepherd in the midst of the shadow. That, friends, is the difference. I will be with you. I will give you my presence and my power and my peace and my purpose in the midst of your valleys. And so, really, we just have to decide. We have to decide who's going to be your shepherd. Are you going to be your shepherd? other people are going to be your shepherd, or are you going to lean into and ask God to be your shepherd? Because see, he's only your shepherd if you ask him. He's not just your shepherd, just because, you know, we were in church today, or because you've heard the Psalm 23. He's only your shepherd when you ask him to be your shepherd. He's only your shepherd when you surrender to him with your life. So, some people I think we just need to, to recognize that. Whatever valley that you're in this morning, you need to recognize I just need Jesus to be my shepherd. So we're gonna close in prayer, and the worship team is gonna come up. And I have one last valley that I want to share with you. One last valley. It's found in Joel 3:14. It says this: Joel chapter 3, verse 14. Multitudes are in the valley. And what valley are the multitudes in? Multitudes are in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So for all of us in our cars and watching online and here in the tent, I want to give us a moment to process the valley of decision. If you'd bow your heads with me. And so, Father, I know that we just need to decide whether or not the Lord is my shepherd, my personal shepherd. Do I want to take Jesus as the shepherd of my life? And Lord, I know there's valleys are a part of our life that we've talked about today. And that today is a day of decision, also, a valley of decision to make the sovereign Lord my personal shepherd and shelter and savior. Father, I, h- I pray that you would help us to remember that you are good, that you have a good purpose even in the bad things that happen. I'm asking you, God, that you would this morning even transform some of the valley of trouble that we experience into a gateway of hope. And Father, I pray this morning for those that would want to say yes to the shepherd. And if that's you this morning, just a simple prayer of praying this in your heart. Repeat this in your heart. Jesus, I'm asking you to come into my heart and forgive my sin of yesterday and be my shepherd. I take you as my own Savior. And I thank you that you're not just the God of the mountains, but you're the God of the valleys. And would you be the God of my valleys? This day, I recognize my need for you, and I receive you. I want to walk with you all the days of my life.